if you have elementary age kiddos or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have and going on. Miss Jody standing there in the back. We would love for them to be part of our Vine Kids time. <laughs> there goes Lily feet dragging in. Well, we're glad you made it this evening. Those of you that ran, congratulations. That's uh, fantastic. We're glad that you made it out. Uh, we're honored that you are here this evening with us. We are in the middle of this journey. So if this is your first time with us, uh, we want to say welcome. My name is Trev Prater, lead pastor here at the Vine Community Church, and we are honored that you're with us. We've been on this really long journey. Uh, it started September of like, I don't know, 14, and we have been on it since then. Um, and it's been 59 weeks. We've taken a lot of breaks, and we did some different stuff over the summer and over Christmas, but 59 weeks of exploring every single word and every single verse in the book of Acts. And we are in this sort of home stretch. We've made it through the first kind of three giant sort of pieces of the book. And we are in the last part as Paul is on his way uh, basically to Rome. He has been told by the Lord Jesus himself that he is going to testify in Rome the same way that he testified in Jerusalem. And that really is the whole last portion of the book. How Paul gets from Jerusalem to Rome to hopefully, or what he thinks will be, stand trial before um, Caesar. And so that's kind of where we are. And I'm going to give you just a quick little recap of how we got to this little place that we're going to find ourselves in the middle of today. So those of you that were, haven't been here will kind of get caught up a little bit. But Paul has finished the three missionary journeys. He has returned uh, to Jerusalem against all the wishings of pretty much everyone around him. All of his companions, all the churches that he stopped and visited kind of on his return trip, they all said, hey, listen, don't go back there. It was a hostile environment. The Jewish culture had become extremely hostile to Christianity, and they were hearing rumors that Paul was teaching the Jewish people that lived out in the Gentile cities, right? So out there in, in Philippi or Corinth or uh, Ephesus and all these cities that Paul visited, they believed that Paul was teaching those Jewish people there that they didn't have to obey the Mosaic law or the ceremonial law. And so they were, they were mad about that, and they were mad about the fact that the gospel was calling into question their very existence, their very way of life. And there was a growing hostility to the gospel, to Christians of the way, which is what they called the, uh, the, the believers of the church in those days. And everybody knew that when Paul returned as sort of the leader of this movement that was taking the gospel to the world, that it was going to end poorly. And Paul himself even knew that. And he basically makes the claim that I know what's waiting for me there because every city I go to, the Holy Spirit tells me the dangers, imprisonments, and even death wait me. But what am I to say except I will go? And so he goes back to Jerusalem. And we know that as soon as he gets there, uh, he's greeted by the church, and, and they're kind of happy he's there, but they also know that there's a problem and this growing hostility kind of gets Paul caught in the middle of a riot. And the long story kind of short is that Paul's discovered there, and some companions with he's with are discovered there, and these guys stir up the crowd, and they grab Paul, and they seize him, and they drag him into the temple in what they call the Gentile courts. That's the outer area of the temple. It's where the Gentiles or non-Jewish people could go to trade or sell or visit, but they couldn't go into the inner parts of the temple. But they took him to the outer courts of the temple and shut the gate, and they began to beat him. And they just beat him and beat him and beat him until he was about to die. And the Roman soldiers that were there, because Jerusalem and all the area actually was under the, the mighty Roman Empire, they have their army barracks, their, their troops were there, right there on the edge of 
where the temple is, and they saw this happening and the riot that was going on. And so Lysias, the commander of the Roman army, sends his troops down there to save Paul's life. They basically rescue him. They bound him with chains, and they dragged him out to the army barracks as the crowd was trying to literally pull him to pieces. And he gets to the steps of the barracks, and he says, hey, let me address the crowd. And Lysias, hoping everything kind of just settles down, says, all right. And so Paul stands on the edge of this sort of steps in the army barracks, and he addresses this angry Mob, and he tells his story, the salvation story of how he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus showed up in this blinding light and, and told him that he was going to be changing his life. And at the very end of his story, he says that you, my, my testimony will not be welcome in Jerusalem, so I'm going to be sending you to the Gentiles. And the crowd freaks out again. And so they're angry about that and they try and reach out and grab him. And Lysias is afraid that they're going to tear him limb from limb. Pretty violent. So he takes him into the army barracks and decides he's going to have him beaten. I'm going to figure out who this Paul is, what his story is. And so they strap him up to this pole or to this table to flog him, literally to sort of torture him and to get him to tell the truth or why everybody's so mad at him. And so Paul's stretched out, ready to be beaten, to be tortured. And he says, hey, I got a question for you. Is it legal for you to beat and torture a Roman citizen? And it wasn't. And so he knew the answer to that question. And the guards that were there stopped and they said, oh, it's not a good idea. And they went to Lysias and they said, he says he's a Roman citizen. And Lysias says, is that true? And Paul says, yes. And Lysias is alarmed because without trial, without conviction, if Lysias beats this Roman citizen or even kills him, then he becomes punishable, uh, punished by death himself. And so he's alarmed, right? And so he has this great plan. He goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Paul before the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish ruling council made up of about 70 or 71 ruling leaders. The Pharisees and the Sadducees made up this sort of ruling council. He's going, I'm going to take them before the Jewish council. I'm going to say, hey, why are you so mad at this guy? And I'm going to try and defuse the situation. So the next morning he calls the Sanhedrin together. And this is where we were last week. He calls the Sanhedrin together, and they're all sitting there. Lysias brings Paul in front of the crowd, right? And in front of this kind of group of religious leaders, 71 of them, right? And Paul says one sentence, and the high priest orders that Paul just gets punched in the mouth, right? And so Paul gets punched in the mouth, and he gets in this kind of verbal confrontation with the high priest, and, and everything kind of goes, just goes sideways again, again. And so then Paul stops. And knowing the makeup of the crowd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and I kind of told you the stories last week that there are five kind of major groups in Jewish sort of religious kind of parties, if you will. And there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the scribes and the Zealots. We talked about those parties. But the two big ones were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they had two major differences. The first was that the Pharisees believed in the oral tradition, that they could add to the law uh, things orally that would be as, and held, held as much weight as the law itself. So the law says, you know, obey the Sabbath. The Pharisees created a system of, of rules about what that was. You could take so many steps, uh, but you couldn't take one more than that. You could tie this kind of knot, but you couldn't take that kind of knot. You could pick this kind of grain, but you couldn't pick that kind of grain. You know, they made those laws, and that oral tradition, they held it on par with God's law. And that's a, that's a lot about what Jesus and the Pharisees fought about, by the way. Well, the Sadducees believed that God's written word alone, that was it. There was no oral tradition. But the big one was that the Sadducees did not believe in any kind of afterlife or any kind of resurrection from the dead. They believed that when you drew your last breath, that was it. Hey, I hope you had a good one because we are done here. And the Pharisees believed not only in an afterlife but in angels and demons and in a whole spiritual realm. And they believed in the resurrection of the dead. That if you morally kept the law perfectly, then you could be raised from the dead. You would have an afterlife. Now, the funny thing is they didn't believe that Jesus was the resurrection. They believed Jesus was a criminal and he was, he was dead. Um, and probably somewhere else. But Jesus himself claimed to be the resurrection. But Paul knows that. 
And he says, let me tell you why I'm on trial. I'm not on trial because I've done anything wrong. I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee and I'm the son of a Pharisee and I am proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And the crowd just went crazy and they started fighting each other, actually. So Sadducees and the Pharisees are arguing because that was the hot button topic. That was the one. And they started fighting and they started getting angry. And then the Pharisees said, Paul's done nothing wrong because now they're all mad at the Sadducees. And they, we find no reason to convict this guy. And it gets angry. And Lysias once again thinks they're going to kill Paul. And, and even though Paul's like, I, I did, you know, and they grab him and they take him back into the barracks. And Lysias is like, oh my word, these guys are nutso. And so crowd is just, the 70 of them are just a mess, right? And so we ended Last week, with Paul back in the army barracks, and it's that same night, right? All this chaos, all this almost attempted death and murder, and he's laying there in bed or wherever. He had a cot or a mat, and Jesus himself shows up, and it says that he stood next to Paul. We talked about the presence of of God and and what that meant. We spent a lot of time last week talking about that, but he stands next to, to Paul, and he says this. He says, take courage, right? Because just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, you must testify about me in Rome. Not asking Paul's permission, right? But essentially saying, look, take courage. It's not over. And it's going to go from bad to worse today. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 23. And we're going to pick up that very next morning in Acts chapter 23, um, verse 12. It's the next morning after all that stuff is shaken down. It's only been a week, actually, since Paul left Caesarea and walked 60 miles into Jerusalem. So all that stuff I just explained has taken place in seven days, okay? And we're going to pick up right in the middle of that. As that night, Jesus appears to Paul, stands near him. We're going to pick up the very next morning. I'm going to cover quite a few verses. We're going to get through a bunch of stuff today because it all fits together. Um, so I'm, um, I'm gonna, instead of doing like kind of what we normally do where I'll kind of recap the text, I'm going to just sort of read it, and then we're going to move through its major movements, and I'll kind of tell you how that's going to look in a minute. But let's take a moment let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. God, that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow. God, that it, you say it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Your, your word is alive. It is your very breath. God, you tell us it is the theopumnesos. It is the breath of God. And Lord, we don't take that lightly. We believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, teach our hearts this evening. Teach our hearts this evening. Maybe there's something we need to hear. Maybe there's a reason that you brought us here tonight. God, maybe you want to, to whisper or speak some kind of truth to us. Or maybe, God, you just want us to sit in your presence. Just ask God right where you sit just to, to reveal himself to you this evening. Whatever that looks like and however you need to say it in your heart, just ask God to, to show up in your life this evening. take a moment and pray for the person beside you, even if you don't know their name, just as we do each week, be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would reveal truth to us. We recognize that we don't discover you on our own, that you reveal to us through your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we ask that you would do that this evening, and we come to you humbly, uh, Father, uh, broken, uh, asking for you to teach our hearts in the name of Jesus, Lord, uh, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be in 2312. We're going to go down to the end of the chapter because we're going to finish this whole uh, little section here because things are going to get a little shaky. And normally I like to sort of 
weed text, and then I'll, I'll kind of recap it and go over the highlights, and then we'll pull some stuff out of it. And, and last week, that took like 58 minutes, so I'm going to not do that tonight. So we're going to, uh, this is a big piece of text. So we're going to do these. Um, I'm going to kind of pull it out in its movements as we go, because there's not a lot of answers tonight. In fact, tonight kind of leaves us wondering what's going to happen. And oftentimes in Scripture, we look to sew everything up for a perfect little three-piece sermon that's got a little hope attached at the end. And, and, and sometimes it, God just leaves us hanging, waiting for the story. And in Paul's case, Paul is left just wondering what is about to unfold because the God that showed up in his life the night before said, take courage, and things have just gone from really bad to worse. And so where is God in the middle of all of that is kind of where I think we're going to find Paul this evening. So let's look at chapter 23, verse 12. The next morning, so this is after Jesus had, had stood next to, to Paul. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy, and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink anything until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. <clears throat> they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about the case. And we are ready to kill him before he arrives. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and he told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. And the centurion said, said, Paul the prisoner sent me to ask to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young man by the hand and drew him aside and said, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Do not give in to them because the more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, do not tell anyone what you have reported to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them to get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And he wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he is a Roman citizen. And I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin, and I found the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to be present so that you could try their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, the cavalry uh, go on. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with them while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. And the governor read the letter and asked what province he what province he was from. And learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, "I will hear your case when your when your accusers arrive." Then he ordered Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. All right, a lot of stuff 
to get to this sort of three big sort of movements within this really dynamic story because this is the stuff that movies are made of. I mean, there's conspiracy, there's deliverance, there's fleeing in the middle of the night. Things had not gone well with the Sanhedrin, right? He was supposed to stand in front of them and plead his case, and they were supposed to say, well, he's done this. And then Lysias was going to sort the whole thing out, and everyone was going to go along their way. Paul got one sentence out and he was punched in the mouth, and then he caused a brawl that almost had him torn limb from limb. So according to Lysias, that has not gone well. And so he's laying in bed, and Jesus shows up to him to essentially say, as we explored last week, hey, look, it's not over, right? This is going to be a journey. Take courage. And we explored the depths of what it meant to be told by the Lord that it's not over, both the good and the uncertainty that's attached to that. But it has not gone well with the Sanhedrin. And so that next morning, we learn of a conspiracy. I mean, a real kind of murder plot conspiracy. These Jewish people that were not part of the Sanhedrin, most likely were Sadducees themselves, were part of the Sadducean sect of the Jewish leaders, but were not part of the Sanhedrin, came up with a plan. And they said, we are not going to let this Paul destroy us. I mean, we're talking about real, deep, unimaginable hatred. I mean, I don't know how mad you've ever been at someone, right? But imagine being so mad that you would take a death oath. I will not eat food. I will not drink water until I kill that person. I mean, this is how angry and how much hatred had filled the hearts of these men. They took an oath that said, we are going to do nothing until we kill Paul. And we've taken an oath. And we've explored this a little bit over our study here, but oaths were a really big deal, right? Um, they were a huge deal. And you, you guarded an oath with your life. You did things like shave your head and wear sackcloth, and you honored that oath, even if it cost you everything. Well, these men, 40 of them, got together and said, we're going to kill Paul. And they went to the Sanhedrin, and they said, basically, this is what you're going to do. They didn't really give the Sanhedrin a choice. That much hatred, that much animosity. They go to them and they say, you're going to call Paul back from the army barracks. And you're going to do it on the pretext that you want to iron out a few details in his story. You understand what you're about to do? Which means most likely the high priest Ananias was in on it, right? He says, you know what you're going to do is you're going to call him down. And then when they bring him down through the streets of Jerusalem, right, which is most likely how he's going to leave the army barracks, or maybe back in that same courtyard of the Gentiles where Paul had been the first time, well, wherever the Sanhedrin was meeting, while they're bringing Paul, the Roman soldiers are bringing him to kind of hear more about his story, we're going to be there to ambush him, and we're going to kill him. And that was the plan. I mean, a murderous deep, real plot. Now, Paul had been had his life threatened, right? He's always sort of been in a place of danger. But this type of conspiracy was sort of new. This type of hatred was new. A lot of Paul's situation that he got himself in was reactionary, like with the Sanhedrin. He got them so fired up, they reacted. A lot of the times, Paul's riots were brought about because he was preaching. And when he was preaching, people got riled up and they got angry. But this was premeditated, thought-out, plot-driven murder. So Paul, having just been told by the Lord Jesus to take courage, we learn the next morning that there is a conspiracy, a real conspiracy to murder him. And the reason I keep saying a real conspiracy, because there's a lot of, hey, we want Paul dead. But these guys had just said, we won't eat a parcel of food, and we won't take a drink until we carry this out. And that's not tongue-in-cheek. If we've learned anything from reading oaths or reading things in Scripture about the way the Jewish people kept and honored their word and the law, they meant it. 
They were going to do anything in their power before, and even it led to their death to kill Paul. This is taking things to an entirely new level. So we've got this conspiracy, kind of bigger than even the situation we had seen before. It involved the entire Sanhedrin and 40 men from the outside. It involved ambush and most likely the killing of Roman soldiers. They were going to ambush the guards as they brought them down in the streets, which meant most likely these men would have their lives punished by death as well. But it was all worth it because there was such hatred and animosity, not just about Paul, but to the gospel. See, Paul had never done anything to these men in particular. Paul's actions had never cost them anything. But Paul's message, his ideas were a threat to the very way of life of the Jewish leadership because he was essentially saying that salvation was by faith alone in Christ, right? Not by the moral, perfectly kind of kept works. And he was proclaiming a resurrection, which the Sadducees did not believe in, and it threatened their entire belief system, belief, uh, belief system and a resurrection the Pharisees, right? Believed in, but believed it was the wrong person. And Paul claimed that Jesus was the resurrection and he was the son of God. And so even though the Pharisees believed that there was an afterlife, it was not coming through him. And so in every category of Paul's life, this gospel message, this unimaginable hatred was real. And they believed that if they could kill Paul, the whole thing would go away. It really would. Even though James, the leader of the entire Christian movement, right, was really there in Jerusalem, Paul was the one that was taking it to the world, and Paul was the threat. And why was Paul the threat? Not just his message, because he was one of them. Paul was the son of a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee himself. He had been trained by the most renowned and most well-respected Pharisee. And his story called into question all of their stories. And they were furious. We have this real, deep conspiracy. We also have a deliverance, right? Did you catch something about that scenario? Maybe it jumped out to you, maybe it didn't. But did you hear something you had never heard before? Something that's almost unimaginable, at least to me? It happens in verse 14. But when the son of Paul's sister heard this, Paul has a sister? Have we ever seen this anywhere in any of Scripture? Have you read about any of Paul's family? Not only does he have a sister, but apparently he has a nephew. The only reference we've ever heard about Paul's family is that we know that his father at 13 sent him to Jerusalem from Tarsus and Cilicia to basically go to seminary at 13 and study and become a great learned mind of a Pharisee. But Paul has a sister. And apparently his sister lives there in Jerusalem. And Paul's made four visits since he left on those missionary journeys. And there's not one mention of him visiting family, seeing anyone. And you want to know why that is? It's probably and most likely because Paul's been disowned from his entire family. Now think about this for a moment. At 13, the pride and joy of your family, your son, right? In those days and those cultures, right? The son held a special place especially if he was the oldest or the only. And they pack up Paul's belongings and they send him over the ocean to Jerusalem to study with the most world-renowned scholar, Gamaliel. Paul's father, a Pharisee, Paul on that track. And as we talked about many times, Paul was incredibly educated, had the equivalent by the time he was 21 of about two PhDs. He was on a fast track into the 
Sanhedrin himself. That was roughly about 13. But about 80, 33, or 35, Paul has a life-changing experience. Right about the time that his life begins to build and swell in religious culture, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's 24 years ago from where we are right now, 80, 57. 24 years prior. Imagine the blow that would have been to your family, right? All of a sudden, the Pharisee that you had raised, the education that you had spent an unbelievable amount of money on, the way that you would send your son away to study, all washed out. And more so, he is an embarrassment to you. And he is not only that, he is hunted. And he is hated with vitriol and anger. Now, we don't know this for sure, but I promise you if Paul's family, his parents were still alive, he was disowned. Why? Because we see this happening in other cultures all the time. We saw it when we went to China. We have people that we know who are Muslim who have given their life to Christ and have been ostracized or disowned from their family for the embarrassment that they are. It's why Christianity is so costly, but not costly to most of us. Because culturally, it's sort of ingrained in who we are. You can be a Christian and not even know who Jesus is because it's steeped into our culture and our society for the most part. But in pockets and in other places in the world, right, giving your life to Christ is costly, deeply costly. Freedom, job, family, protection. Well, Paul was called out of all of that on that road to Damascus. And we hear nothing in 13 letters that he wrote about family. Well, apparently he's got a sister that lives in Jerusalem. And more so, he has a nephew, probably more than one, but he's got one at least. And somehow this nephew hears about the plot. How does he hear? He's a young boy. We know he's a young boy because when he goes to Lysias, the commander, the commander takes him by the hand, right? It's not an 18-year-old kid. This is a young boy. He takes him by the hand and he says, what do you have to tell me? How does Paul's nephew get in the army barracks? The Roman army barracks. I mean, this is an incredible story. Do you see what's happening here? God is using these tiny, extraordinary, incredible things, possibly broken family and small boys, to deliver Paul because God's movement, his providential design, his plan will be carried out. And God is delivering Paul through these extraordinary little things. I mean, if you think about it, how in the world does that add up that Paul takes, God takes brokenness, a family, a nephew, a young boy, gets them into the army barracks. Somehow connected well to the story, maybe his family was still tied well within the religious elite and they heard about this plot. Well, this boy goes to Uncle Paul. Now, we got Uncle Don. He plays worship for us, but Uncle Paul is a different guy. And he goes to Uncle Paul in those barracks, and he says, they're going to kill you. And Paul probably says, no, I know. He goes, no, no, there's a real conspiracy to kill you. And Paul says, calls a guard over and says, go tell Lysias. So the boy goes over there, and he tells him the whole thing. And then Lysias says, don't tell anybody. The details, the extraordinary details, the small things that God is using to bring about his glory and his providential design. I started thinking about my own salvation story, right? Because 
if you look at yours, right, how you met Christ and how what God was doing in your life, if you really look at it, all the little pieces, all the small things that came together that God was using to draw you to himself, the people, the things, the way those things lined up. Look at my own story. And I remember this guy I met at lunch. I was a seventh grader. He had come in from a local church, and he was visiting. He was a youth pastor kind of he wasn't the youth pastor, he was like an intern. He was working with this local church, and I'd met him. He's a friend of one of my friends, college kid, college guy. And he invited me to come on Sunday night to the youth group, and I didn't want to go. And he called me on Sunday night, and he invited me to go, and I said no. That was September, like, 12th. He called me every Sunday until April, like, 28th, like, right at the end of the month. And I said no every single time. And I created all kinds of excuses. Really, I just didn't want him to call me anymore. I thought it was weird. But finally, in April, whatever that was, like 24th, I said, and I literally just kind of said, if I go and I don't like it, we're done here? That's kind of how that works? And my mom was like, just go, go, because, you know, she'd been trying to get me to go to our own church, and I just, I was having pushback issues, and I was, I was in a weird time in my life, and I was, I was questioning a lot of things, and just about life and family and stuff. And I said, and he said, absolutely, absolutely, if you don't like it, I'll quit calling. So I went with him, and that night, on that Sunday night, I heard the gospel for the first time. I've been going to church most of my life. But I heard the gospel for the first time, and I heard it because I believe that God removed a lot of uh, kind of noise from my ears. And I heard the gospel presented for the first time very clearly. And then two months later, after continuing to go and be a part of this, I surrendered my life to Christ going into the eighth grade, which would really be the life-changing moment for me forever. But I remember the things that happened that year and the conversations this had and the persistent call and the things that led up to that. And I think if we look at our lives, we see God using these extraordinary little things to bring about his glory. We see that happening here, and I find it so absolutely incredible. You remember the story of Joseph? Genesis. Genesis records this incredible story of Joseph. Joseph was hated by his brothers because, well, because he was kind of smug. And he had a dream where they all kind of served him, which never goes over well with all your brothers. And they hated him. And so they wanted to get rid of him. And so what they decided to do is they were going to kill him. And they were going to go back to their father and kind of show a, a robe that he had that was really pretty and better than all their robes. And they were going to basically show their father had been torn to pieces by wild animals. And that his whole plan. And, and then they decided the last minute not to kill him but instead to sell him into slavery. And they still went back and told the father that he had been killed, but they didn't really kill him because they didn't want to feel bad. So they sold him to a band of gypsies, essentially, that were coming by and said, hey, it was good to be your brother. Now you're gone. And they sold him into slavery. And Joseph went to jail. God kind of showed him some favor, and he, he rose up there. And then he kind of was released from jail, and he was serving one of these high Egyptian officials. And then he was uh, kind of accused, falsely accused, of committing adultery with this guy's wife. And he was run out, and, and then God kind of gives him a little bit more leverage. And all these things happen until Joseph finds himself as the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. All of Egypt. And guess what? The promised land at the time where, where Joseph's father, Jacob, and all these people were living goes into this massive famine, and everybody begins to die die. And Egypt is the only place that has any food. And so the family comes all the way out of the promised land into Egypt, and they find themselves face to face with Joseph, who they didn't even really recognize at the time. It had been so many years. And Joseph basically provides food to them, and the Israelites enter Egypt, and that's kind of how they end up in Egypt, where they go into captivity. But what Joseph says to the brothers is this. 
He says, look, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. No anger, no hatred, no animosity. That God took your attempt to destroy me and he used it for good to save you, ultimately to save you, which is such an incredible story. Here's Paul, right, with a sister and a nephew that have wiggled their way into the Roman army barracks. And they go to Lysias, and Lysias says, we got to do something about this. We've got this conspiracy, we've got this deliverance. And then we have this fleeing in the middle of the night, which is, I mean, this thing is incredible, right? So listen to what happens. Lysias stops. It's 9 o'clock or kind of in the, in the afternoon, and he says, at 9 o'clock, I want you to leave. And he calls over two centurions, and he says, get 200 soldiers, infantry. Go ahead and get 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen, which I guess are guys with spears, right? I want you to gather those 470 troops. And at 9 o'clock when the sun goes down, I want you to walk the 70 miles from here to Caesarea. Because in Caesarea was where the Roman army headquarters were. Scholars believe that there were only about 600 soldiers in Jerusalem at the time. Most of them were headquartered in Caesarea. So they take 470 of the 600 soldiers present in the entire city and they march to Caesarea. They stop about halfway, about 30 miles for a rest in a place called Antipatris because it was a long walk. But mighty Rome comes to the deliverance of Paul the Apostle. The greatest empire possibly the world has ever known with its soldiers, its crack soldiers, its trained soldiers, its feared soldiers, 470 of them taking Paul to Caesarea to save his life. God had taken the world to come to Paul's rescue. It's not going to last long, but God moved the entire Roman Empire to deliver Paul in the middle of the night. And what is more, it says that they provided Paul with horses. So they gave Paul mounts to ride. The Greek word there is actually plural, which means they gave Paul more than one horse. Maybe it was for his stuff, or maybe it's if Paul's horse got tired, he had another one. But he was not walking because they were moving quickly. They believed this oath by the, by the, uh, uh, the Jews to be real, and they were moving in the middle of the night, and they were doing it at a rapid clip. Can you imagine? These were not big roads. The roads that came down from Jerusalem were notoriously windy, and they dropped miles. 470 soldiers. 70 horsemen, with Paul's horses included, coming down these road, this road to Caesarea to the coast. A road that Paul himself had walked seven days earlier. Well, seven days and now one day earlier. As a free man, now a prisoner, right? A prisoner with this entire magnificent movement of Roman soldiers. And I find this remarkable because we read it and we gloss over it, but do you think what it would take to mobilize 470 soldiers for a 70-mile journey there and back? That's incredible. It's nothing short of this amazing move of God where he mobilizes the Roman Empire because God's plan, right? God's providential plan, his glory, his story will not be thwarted. 
And so God mobilizes the Roman Empire through the voice of a tiny boy, right, who we have never known or heard of and didn't even know existed, and we won't ever hear from them again in all of Scripture. A nephew that we've never known shows up, somehow hearing this incredible story, sets up the deliverance, and then they flee. The Roman army doesn't flee from anyone. That's why they're the Roman army, because they would march on incredible, incredible distances to incredible towns, and they would wipe out everyone. Do you think they were afraid of 40 Jewish guys that have taken an oath? They could squash them. But God mobilized this movement because what was the call? Paul was going to Rome. The goal wasn't saving Paul's life. It was taking the gospel to Rome. And God mobilized it because God's plan, his providential movements, well, they happen. So Paul arrives. They stop at Antipatris, and, and uh, the soldiers now have made the big part of the journey. They return, and the cavalry rides into Caesarea with Paul. And what is accompanying him with his horses and the spearmen and the infantry and the cavalry? A letter. A letter. A letter from Lysias, the commander, to Felix, the governor. Antonius Felix, he was in charge of all of the area. Kind of a big deal. He once was a former slave, and his brother was a really kind of high-ranking official, and so he got an incredible job governing the whole area. And they show up with a letter, and we know a little bit about him from history. He was just a really crooked guy. He took a lot of bribes. In fact, he tries to get Paul to bribe him next week. We'll see that in a minute. But he was just a crooked dude. A lot of officials were. But they arrive with a letter, and that letter is remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable. Because this is what it says, right? It says this. It says, listen, Felix, I got to tell you about this guy, Paul, right? He was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. And I came with my troops and rescued him because I learned he was a Roman citizen. Is that how the story really went? Do you remember how the story went? The story went that the Jews seized Paul. True. We rode in and rescued him. Well, arrested him. Either way, a little bit of a mix-up of words. But we arrested him. So that's kind of true, right? Because they were going to kill him. So, so we rescued him because we knew he was a Roman citizen. False. In fact, what we were going to do, we were going to take him and beat him to almost death till he spoke, and then he told us he was a Roman citizen, and we freaked out. Because that's what happened. Because, in fact, what, what Lysias does is he is so alarmed that he just sort of overcomforts Paul and sends him with 470 soldiers to Caesarea to make sure he didn't die. Because if he died without a trial, guess who was in trouble? Lysias. So he sends this remarkable letter, which is just sort of a few shades off of the truth, and says, Hey, I just want to let you know that I saved this guy because you know what we do for Rome? We save the citizens here, man. That's what we're about. I'm just here saving lives, right? So he says, Hey, look, well, Felix, I'm, I'm busy saving lives. And to save this guy, and I wanted you to know that I'm sending them to you, right? Because there is a plot against him. We found nothing wrong with him, which is actually true, and he doesn't deserve to die. So I'm sending to you, and I'm sending his accusers also so that you can try. Because what will happen in those days is in order for you to stand trial, your accusers had to be present, right? If your accusers weren't there, then there was no one to make an accusation against you and you couldn't stand trial. And so, so they were going to send him. And then Lysias, five days later, as we'll find out next week, sends the accusers as well. And they're going to stand trial before Felix, right? And so Felix gets this letter and he reads it and he asks 
Paul, where he's from, what part of, uh, you know, kind of a question to make sure he's really a Roman citizen. He says, you know, I'm from Cilicia and Tarsus. And, and so Felix says, okay, I will, uh, I'm going to try your case. And five days later, Paul's accusers are going to show up. So here's Paul in Herod's palace. Now, it's not a palace anymore. It was this incredible grand place that Herod had built for himself, but then it kind of been destroyed, and now it's being used as an army barrack again. So Paul finds himself in the company of Roman soldiers waiting for his trial, right? So imagine a day has gone by, maybe a day and a half, if they spent any time in Antipatris, and Paul is now back in a different army barracks, really in a much more difficult circumstance. He's on, on kind of a different trajectory now. He is now going to stand trial for his life. Paul knows that Jesus had told him that he was going to Rome, but he's going to stand trial before Felix, who everyone knew was crooked. And if the Jews could bribe him, they win. And Paul's left there waiting. I started thinking about this. I started thinking about the things that would be going through Paul's head, what would be going through my head. We talked a little bit about this last week. But if Paul's letters are any kind of window into his heart or into his, his mind, there's this one constant thread that would keep coming up. If we really read all the stuff that he wrote to everybody else and we believe that he believed it for himself, it would be something like this, that God is in charge, he is in control. In every circumstance, in the good and the bad, God is absolutely moving and I can trust him. I mean, those are Paul's kind of concise words to everybody else, to the Philippians, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians. He writes those things. And if those are windows to what he's really feeling as he lays there at night waiting trial, and let me tell you this, I'm not going to tell you how the story ends, but it's going to be two years before Paul leaves Caesarea. Two years. Now, when Jesus showed up and told Paul he was going to Rome, if Paul's anything like me, he's like, sweet, I'll see you in Rome in the morning. Like, we're thinking God is moving now. Two years before he even leaves that army barracks or that area of town. God is in charge. He is in total control through the good and through the bad and through the uncertain, and I can trust him. And as I started thinking about Paul in my own life, I started wondering if those things were really true in me. They're really true in me. That when things go from bad to worse, even if I feel like a peace, like God has told me or whispered something to me, do I really believe that in the good and the bad and the uncertainty that I can trust him. That I can trust him. Not because it will all work out good for me. Because as Paul himself wrote, right? His letter to the Romans while in Corinth, literally less than four weeks prior, where God works for the good of all of those who love him and have been called according to his Purpose. Paul's going to pen those words four weeks earlier. Do I really believe those things? That God is at work not for my, just for my good, right? But God is at work for good, for his perfect and powerful and beautiful and real plans that are oftentimes very difficult and that sometimes have two weeks, two years, four years worth of hardship attached to them because as we looked at last week, it's not over. And it's not over is difficult to hear. But it's not over is also the greatest promise Scripture has ever said to us. That this is not it. That it is not over. 
and that we are not guaranteed happiness and great things and gold coins falling from the sky. But we're guaranteed something that outweighs all of that. And as Paul laid there, all I could think about were all the words that he had written so far. He's still going to write letters from Rome. He's going to write the Philippians from Rome. He hasn't written even half of what he will pen. What we know is that what he wrote were whispers out of his own heart. God is in charge. God is in control. In the good and the bad and the uncertain, I can trust him. I want those words to be mine. I want them to be yours. I want to be able to echo them. God, you're in charge and you are in control. You can use the extraordinarily insignificant voices of a child to mobilize the Roman Empire for your plan. You are good and you are in control even in the bad and the uncertain. And I can trust you. Whatever you're standing in the middle of, maybe it's something giant, maybe it's something small, maybe it's just wondering how much of this is all really true. The answer is the same. God is in charge. He is in control. The good, the bad, the uncertain, you can trust him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. I thank you, God, that it is true and sharp and real. And I pray that sometimes, God, it doesn't make perfect sense. And sometimes there's no pretty answers. And sometimes like this, we leave Paul just sitting in jail. And I would love to tell you that next week the trial is going to happen. Everything's going to be forgiven and everybody goes. But the truth is, God, it gets worse. And Paul's going to get shipwrecked. And he's going to get bit by snakes. And he's going to almost die like four more times. But God, you are, even in the middle of chaos and difficulty, you are still God. And your promises are still true. And so, Lord, I pray that you would hear our cry and you would hear our heart this evening. And that, God, my heart, God, I pray that my heart would not just be able to say these things but believe them. God, you are in charge and you are in control. And the good and the bad and the uncertain, I can trust you. God, let that be the cry of our heart as we close our time in worship this evening. Let's stand together and worship our God.